1996. And it was dedicated to Pope St. Pius V in honour of Mary, Queen of the Most Holy Rosary. Now, Father Malachi Martin is a bit of a... Some have called him an enigma. He's quite a mysterious figure. He was advisor to three popes. Uh, he himself was a Jesuit, was part of the Jesuit order. But uh, in his later life, he asked to be uh, released from his Jesuit vows. But nevertheless, he remained a priest and he said mass until the rest of his life. He died in 1999. Um, but he's quite an interesting figure. There are lots of interviews available on YouTube and other platforms that he gave, most notably with Art Bell on his radio program and a few others as well where he talks more about uh, the, the state of the church um, and certain religious affairs, a lot of which he gets into in this book, in most of his books. He was quite a prolific author. Um, I've only read one other book by him, uh, which is Hostage to the Devil, which discusses five cases of demonic possession. I might do a review about that at another, at another point in time. However, um, for today we'll focus on his last book, this was also his last book, Windswept House. I'll just read the, the blurb on the back to give a basic overview of what it's about, and then I'll get into my own review of it. So, the Cold War has ended. With a scope and daring not possible until now, an unlikely international alliance of top-level political, financial and religious interests sees the way clear at last to its ultimate goal, the establishment of a single global society, utopia. With nothing in common but immense power and a towering ambition for, for still more, with world unity and prosperity as their slogan, with betrayal, scandal and murder as their ready weapons, these men have the means and the will to capture as their own the perfect global machinery of their plans, the oldest, wiliest, and most stable political chancery in the world, the Vatican. At the vortex of this lethal struggle, along with the embattled Pope, stand two American brothers, Paul and Christian Gladstone, one a lawyer, the other a priest, who appear to be the perfect pawns. One falls prey to the sharp teeth of greed, the other will become one of the Pope's closest allies ultimately discovering the darkest of secrets in papal Rome. From America to Europe to Russia, in broad landscapes and clandestine corridors, a rich and varied caste, presidents and politicians, saints and sinners, peacemakers and papal wannabes, clash amid dramatic and sometimes bloody events while the fate of the world hangs in the balance.
So the book itself, uh, the novel, really I should say, is classified as fiction. However, Father Martin testified that most of the events are based on true events and the characters based on true people as well, just the names were changed. Uh, I think in one of his interviews he gave, he said that, that was it 90% of the events are real and 80% of the people are real. I also came across an interesting website, I'll put the link in the description below, that tries to identify the characters in the book and tries to match them up with who they're based upon. So just some basic info about the book itself. So as you can see, it's quite, quite substantial. This uh, publication of it is 646 pages and was it, 54 chapters, I think. So the chapters are quite long. The book itself is quite long, so that might be off-putting for some people. Um, and it did take me quite a, quite a while to get through it as well. So that might be a deterrent for some. With regards to the content, the book itself is, is interesting. If you're interested in church politics and what's how certain things um, are happening in, in the Vatican, um, and if it is in fact true, it will give you quite a, a good insight into the early 90s. It's set, I think it starts in 1990, the year 1990, and it spans over three years. So it brings us up to about 1993. So it all takes place during the pontificate of Pope John Paul II. And Pope John Paul himself appears throughout the book. He's one of the main characters, although he's always referred to as the Slavic Pope. Um, I will read some excerpts in a minute to give us more of an idea. Uh, before I do, I'll just go to the very start, the very um, beginning of the book. There's a section called History as Prologue, End Signs. And Father Malachi describes a few instances from the 60s, uh, or 50s, sorry, from the 50s into the 70s that have happened. Uh, these are based on, on real real events, which then serve as, uh, well, as he says himself, a, pro a prologue. Those are the events that characterize, influence directly the events that happened then as described in the novel. The first of these is the signing of the Treaty of Rome on March 25th, 1957, when the diplomats from the six founding states of the EEC, what became the EEC, the European Economic Community, uh, arrived in Rome. And they had a papal audience, a brief papal audience, with Pope Pius XII. Uh, I'll just read an excerpt from that section there. Again, this happened in 1957. Now, I don't know if this conversation is based on, on reality or if that was just uh, Father Malachi's own uh, liberty, but this is, describes a brief scene between the Pope and one of his uh, priest friends after the diplomats arrived and uh, were ready to sign the treaty. So the priest asks, what do you think, Holiness? Can their new Europe develop strongly enough to stop Moscow? Again, remember, this is in the backdrop of the Cold War. Pius turned to his companion, a German Jesuit, a longtime friend and favorite confessor. Marxism is still the enemy, Father, but the Anglo-Saxons have the initiative. On this Pope's lips, Anglo-Saxon meant the Anglo-American establishment. Their Europe will go far, and it will go fast. 
but the greatest day for Europe has not yet dawned. The Jesuit failed to follow the papal vision. Which Europe, holiness? The greatest day for whose Europe? For the Europe born today. The Pope's answer was unhesitating. On the day this Holy See is harnessed to the new Europe of the diplomats and politicians, to the Europe centred in Brussels and Paris, on that day the Church's misfortunes will start in earnest. Then, turning again to watch the limousines departing across St. Peter's Square, the new Europe, he said, will have its little day, Father, but only a day. So in that little excerpt we see the first, uh, what appears to be a criticism of the European project, which... Uh, community into the European Union and that in itself as well is uh, often looked at as a precursor to what will become the, the new world order, the one world government or dictatorship uh, depending on who you talk to <laughs> but that is a theme that recurs throughout is the, the diplomats, the politicians trying to set everything in motion to unite Europe, to bring Europe together, and then from there to unite the whole world. And of course, uh, during the Cold War, you still had the two main factions, the West versus the East, the Soviet Union, and the Warsaw Pact. But of course, in the early 90s, that falls apart. And so then the next steps are taken to include all of the world in this plan of world conquest, world domination. So the next... Uh, excerpt from history brings us to 1960, which is some might recognise as the year that the secret of Fatima was to be revealed. Um, it had been written down and had been given to the Pope, and that Sister Lucia's request was either to be read out uh, in the year 1960 or upon Sister Lucia's death, whichever occurred first. Now, Sister Lucia was alive at this time, so the Pope was to read it out in the year 1960. So there's a brief uh, chapter on this, describing how they went about that, and the reluctance to reveal, to release that secret. And the reason given for that is um, because it would upset relations with Russia. And as we know, in the Fatima visions, Our Lady warned that if Russia is not consecrated, she, Russia, will spread her errors across the world. Another reason for delaying uh, or for not reading out this secret was that it would interfere with the upcoming council that was planned. Um, so Pope John XXIII was uh, in charge at the time. And the discussions held, as described in this chapter here, between the priest and, and himself, and they're worried that it would interfere with that. So I'll just read another excerpt here, when they decide what to do. So for all the trust His Holiness placed in the Jesuit Cardinal's expertise and loyalty, the decision went against Fatima. 
Questo non è per i nostri tempi, the Holy Father said. This is not for our times. Shortly after that day, the Cardinal scanned the brief release distributed to the media by the official Vatican press office. Its words would stand forever in his mind as a curt refusal to obey the will of heaven. For the good of the Church and the welfare of mankind, the statement declared, the Holy See had decided not to publish the text of the Third Secret at this time. The decision of the Vatican is based on various reasons. One, that Sister Lucia is still living. Two, the Vatican already knows the contents of the letter. Three, although the Church recognizes the Fatima apparitions, she does not pledge herself to guarantee the veracity of the words which the three little shepherds claim to have heard from Our Lady. In these circumstances, it is most probable that the secret of Fatima will remain forever under absolute seal. Holy See would have amicable words with Nikita Khrushchev. The pontiff would have his council. The council would have its orthodox prelates from the Soviet Union. You see, that was another issue as well. Uh, they were afraid that because of the uh, ecumenical nature of the Second Vatican Council that was being prepared at this time, they wanted members of the Eastern Orthodox Churches to be present, and they were worried that if uh, they read out third secret, and it displeased Russia, Khrushchev wouldn't allow the prelates of the Eastern Orthodox Church to come to Rome for the council. Okay. Next, we move on to 1963, which is perhaps the most harrowing uh, scene described in this novel. And again, Father Malachi Martin testified that this really happened. He was asked about it in some of his last interviews that he gave after publishing this book, uh, whether this was true, and he testified, uh, he said that it, firmly stated that it was. So what happened in 1963? We read, the enthronement of the fallen archangel Lucifer was effected within the Roman Catholic citadel on June 29th, 1963, a fitting date for the historic promise about to be fulfilled. As the principal agents of this ceremonial well knew, Satanist tradition had long predicted that the time of the prince would be ushered in at the moment when a pope would take the name of the apostle Paul. And again, this was in the wake of the pontificate of Paul VI. That requirement, the signal that the availing time had begun, had been accomplished just eight days before with the election of the latest Peter in the line, Paul VI. And again, June the 29th is the feast day of Saints Peter, and Paul. So that is why that date had been chosen for this enthronement of Lucifer, which Martin then goes on to describe occurred in the chapel of St. Paul uh, near the Apostolic Palace in the Vatican. And those celebrating that Mass were high-ranking priests and bishops who were in fact Satanists who had risen in the ranks and they performed a black Mass 
was part of that enthronement. And there was another black mass occurring at the exact same time in South Carolina. And they were in contact with each other over the phone to make sure that they held their ceremonies at the same time. So this black mass then is described in detail, uh, very harrowing and disturbing. And indeed devastating for the church, if true. But again, this event uh, throughout the book is seen as the cause of the current crisis in the church and the lack of vocations, the lack of faith that has followed ever since then. And the last historical episode described in this prologue is from 1978, which, of course, was what some refer to as the year of three popes. When Paul VI died, John Paul I was elected, but died 33 days later. And then John Paul II was elected. So it just describes that, that moment uh, in history and what occurred around that time. It doesn't go into much detail. Again, it's uh, a lot of di dialogue probably to, to fill in what, what was said at, at the time. to the end of the historical prologue then it jumps into the main story itself and brings us all the way to uh, the early 90s and we're introduced to our main characters one of whom as i've mentioned previously was pope john paul ii himself okay so what do i myself think about this book um, as a novel now personally i enjoyed it uh, it took me quite a while to get through it because it is quite, uh, well, it's long and the, the material is heavy as well. Father Malachi Martin, is, he's a great writer. If you've if read any of his things, you really know that he really has the gift of, of a good author, of a good writer. Now, for some, that might be a bit tedious because he's extremely descriptive. There are some scenes he describes in such intricate detail that uh, sometimes I think the book could have been 200 pages shorter if it left out all those... Uh, insignificant, what I think were insignificant details and just stuck to the main plot, to the dialogue between the characters, which I personally found was the most interesting. Um, the characters themselves were solid enough. The main character, a priest called Christian Gladstone, is very likable, a solid priest, a decent priest. And it looks at uh, his own family, the origins of his family. Um, he has a brother called Paul, who is a, a diplomat, high-ranking diplomat, who becomes the uh, the head head counselor, head secretary of the European Commission, or something like that? And he has a sister, and her name was Patricia, I think, and she was going blind. She has an interesting story too that's just touched upon recently, but it's strongly alluded to that she uh, was a victim soul, that she prayed for the conversion of someone. And in exchange, she asked for that person's um, misfortune to befall her, which, of course, is something that we should never do. Or she made some kind of a sacrifice like that, but in the end, uh, she ended up losing her sight. But that person she prayed for, uh, I think, was a reconversion. That it was, I think it was a priest she prayed for. She prayed for a priest 
who had lost his faith and who had run off with a woman, started a, an adulterous relationship with her. And Trish, the main character's sister, prayed for him and uh, he returned to the faith. Um, but in ex uh, at the expense of, of her eyesight, which was what she uh, herself wanted. And she, uh, there's an interesting conversation in the book, uh, in the novel itself, between her and her brother when they discussed that matter. And she didn't tell anyone about it, that that's what she prayed for and that that's what happened and that's what she believes was the cause of her of her uh, loss of sight and her pain. She was in a lot of pain. So that's uh, one of the scenes that I found quite touching. The other characters, there's another lovely priest, uh, Father Duncan Damien Slattery, Irish Dominican, uh, working in Rome. He's another great character. He's the second, a good friend of the main character, uh, Father Christian. And the chemistry between those two main characters is quite good. And that's very well. So, so that part of the story is very well written. As this plot progresses, the two of them are sent by Pope John Paul II to America to investigate cases of uh, sexual abuse. Again, remember in the early 90s, that was when the lid was, was opened on all that, that scandal. And also cases of Satanism within the clergy. So the two of them are sent off to investigate that. I'll read some more excerpts uh, in a minute. Um, but just to come to the conclusion of the review itself... dialogue as well between the diplomats is quite interesting. You see a lot of high-ranking officials, uh, diplomats, politicians for the, uh, again, this set during the transition from the European Economic Community to the EU. We know the Treaty on European Union was signed in Maastricht then in uh, 1992 and came into effect in 93. So you see the, the build-up towards that. And everything then in the novel itself centres around the Vatican, what the Pope, uh, is the Pope going to support those efforts? And, and uh, yeah, so what will happen next with where the Church itself fits in with this agenda towards uh, global globalisation uh, and the, the one world order, new world order that is being put in place. Another very important character was, of course, the Pope himself, John Paul II. If you look at this novel with fresh eyes and look at the Pope as a character with fresh eyes, um, throughout you're going to feel very sorry for him. He's clearly a man who is in a serious dilemma. He's portrayed in this novel as someone who has the faith, tremendous faith, unwavering faith, but he's surrounded on all sides by enemies. And... Uh, his greatest enemies, unfortunately, are the bishops and, and cardinals that should, in fact, be protecting him and his office. But you see that they do the exact opposite. They're in cahoots with the politicians, the globalists, and they're trying to undermine the things that John Paul II is trying to do, especially in matters of faith. Because the world, the way the world is going, they want to promote 
all the, the liberal agendas, especially abortion, euthanasia, all these uh, what we would call sins against life, which the Pope is trying to defend and which he writes an encyclical about, um, which is severely criticised by those around him, even though he's just defending the faith and reiterating what the Church has always taught concerning those matters. At the same time, he's portrayed as a man who has no control, and that is his greatest flaw, that he just, he, he lacks leadership, strong leadership qualities, and he cannot put those uh, faithless and tepid priests and bishops back in their place. So that is one of the greatest calamities that is discussed in the book. There's an, also an interesting scene in it that describes a confession um, when the Pope goes to confession. Now again, this could be entirely made up unless Malachi Martin himself was the confessor. Although if he was, then he'd be breaking the seal of confession. So I think that was entirely made up. But the, the purpose of that scene was to show that the Pope himself had committed uh, what is described as sins of omission that he could have done things to prevent the crisis in the church, to stop the, this uh, anti-faith agenda from going ahead, but he did, he lacked the, the fortitude to do so. So that was also an interesting scene in that. I just want to read a few excerpts to finish up, just to give a further idea of the kind of things that were discussed here. First concerns a character, uh, the character of Cardinal Maestroiani, who is based on, who was at the time the Vatican secretary. So Maestroiani was based on the Cardinal secretary uh, Casseroli, who resigned in 1990. And it, uh, the, book, the novel itself talks about that resignation and his successor. So Maestroianni is based on Casseroli, but in the, in the novel itself he's referred to as Maestroianni. So I'll just read a bit about him and his thought process and how he himself got mixed up into all these, uh, this agenda and the conspiracies. So he writes... Cardinal Secretary Maestroianni did not see himself as having abandoned or betrayed his Roman Catholicism. Rather, he saw that his own original faith, acquired in the now crumbling bastions of the old church, had been purified and enlightened because he had been humanized. Sorry, because it had been humanized. It had been made real within the concrete circumstances of the 20th century. So what do we have there? Well, straight away... Uh, we see here an instance of the heresy of modernism, this idea that the faith needs to be updated and brought in line with the current situation in, with the rest of the world. So here uh, we see that my, this character, Cardinal Maestroianni, was a modernist. So much of what he had once simply taken for granted had been overloaded with elements that merely came from the various cultural periods in the church's history. Such baggage-laden concepts had nothing to do with present reality, nothing to do with the process, and the process here is always uh, written down with a capital P, the process, towards the, the one-world uh, government. Now, however, he had come to understand history and the salvation of mankind in a way he knew the Slavic Pope, John Paul II, would never grasp. 
Now he understood that such concepts are still guide, as still guided the Slavic Pope should have no influence, not even the slightest manifestation in the workings and administration of the Church. Just suppose Maestriani had gone to the Helsinki Conference in 1975, for example, and preached to presidents and foreign ministers about St. Mary Magdalene adoring the risen Christ, as the Slavic Pope would do this evening at St. Bohm. Why, he would have been carried off in a straitjacket. For here again we see he's ashamed of the faith, ashamed of what the faith teaches and what we believe. For the true role of the Church Maestriani now understood was as one player in a vaster evolution, a vaster process, than the Slavic Pope seemed able to encompass. A vast process and a very natural one that recognized the fact that all the woes of the human family were caused in the first place not by some primitive notion of original sin, but by poverty and want and ineducation. A process that would at last clear humanity from those troubles and so would ultimately harmonize the spirit of man, God and the cosmos. When the process was fully accomplished in the new political order of mankind, then would the church be one with the world. For only then would the Church take its proud and rightful place as part of the human heritage, as a stabilizing factor in the new world order, as a true and bright mirror of the untroubled mind of God. Oh dear, Cardinal of the Church. So again, we have to remember again, it's characterized as fiction, but the author himself testifies that it's based on true events, and based on all the internal evidence, this Cardinal Secretary Maestriani is based on Cardinal Cassaroli, who was the Vatican Secretary until 1990.
Next excerpt I want to read out is an audience with the Pope uh, between himself and a character called Ceci Gladstone, who's the mother of the, uh, two of the main characters. She's the mother of the main character, Father Christian Gladstone. So she herself also has tremendous faith. Uh, they live in uh, Galveston, Texas, and she traveled all the way to Rome on other business, but she was able to obtain an audience with the Pope. And she is a very traditionally minded Catholic. And after the first, uh, or after the initial pleasantries, which they talk things over, she gets a bit more agitated about the current state of the church. So these are some of the things that she has to say to the Pope. Unfortunately, Holy Father, the supply of validly ordained priests and therefore of validly administered sacraments are both diminishing at the same rate as the church structure is imploding on itself and disintegrating into dust. And remember, this is in the early 90s. The pontiff was obviously fascinated by the self-possession of this Signora Gladstone. Her head slightly inclined, she never took her eyes from his while she spoke. She rarely paused except in silent query. She seemed to be pouring out her inmost concerns about, without haste or hesitation, but with an edge of passion that deepened the character of her language. Being of steel himself, the Pope recognized the steel in her. As I have said, my perspective is different from your holiness's, and in that I have the advantage. For despite your holiness's many personal pilgrimages, your holiness must deal with a sea of people, and with emotionless graphs and charts that tell little of the people's discontent and moral confusion. With faceless, voiceless letters of pain and incomprehension, uh, incomprehension. From my vantage point, I have only to listen to hear the, more, the mourning of my fellow Roman Catholics. I have felt the suffering of Father James Horan, a genuinely good Orthodox Papist priest in my own diocese. At 45, he has been defrocked and banished by our bishop. Why? Because he insists on preaching Roman Catholic morality in marriage. Because he refuses to accept the many strands of the modernist heresy that have been embraced and fostered by the conciliar church because he denounces the homosexuality bubbling to the surface among some of his fellow priests, because he is chaste and celibate. Father Horan has now been abandoned, with no friend in our local chancery and no advocate or defender in your holiness's chancery. He and others like him twist slowly in the winds of corruption, while our bishops cry crocodile tears that there are not enough priests. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> And from my vantage point, Holiness, I know the danger of those who present themselves for their first communion. Two of my own godchildren were both forbidden to go to first confession before their first communion. The rosary beads I had given them were taken away from them as superstitious objects. The priest each gave them a red, white and blue balloon to carry in, a one, to carry in one hand instead, and a square of soda bread to carry in the other. Each was told, eat with Jesus. The whole congregation clapped and chanted, eat with Jesus. 
Those two children, Holy Father, did not receive the body, blood, soul and divinity of our Lord and Saviour. Instead of being led into a state of grace, they were probably led into mortal sin. For if they worshipped anything at all that day, it was nothing more than bread. And that is material idolatry. His face strained of colour, the pontiff raised his hands in something between prayer and protest. But, Signora, you must catechise those little ones. You must teach them. Of course, Holy Father, says he was merciless. But teaching them is not enough. For where are they to go now? Where are any of us to go now to receive valid sacraments? These examples are not exceptions. They are not even the rule. For there are far worse cases. Your Holiness must surely know there are entire regions where the validity of all the sacraments, beginning with priestly ordination itself, are in serious doubt. Where the body and blood of Christ no longer resides in the tabernacles. Where the bread on the altar is just bread. Where the wine is just wine. Unless something else like grapefruit juice is substituted instead. Your Holiness must know all of this. But if you do not, then I cannot say whether the greater sin lies with those who hide the truth from your holiness or with your, or with your holiness for not taking the pains to find out the facts about the church and its abandonment of the faithful. So these are a few of the grievances uh, related by a traditional Catholic, again, in, described in in, in the novel in novel format however bearing in mind that this was written in 96 describes a scene that supposedly took place in the 1991 or 92 and comparing it to our own situation today uh, it does really give us something to, to think about Yellow Fitzgerald. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is Everywhere you go. So 
by members of the Church of the Papacy. Their desire to undo the, the role of and the office of the Pope and to make every bishop his own Pope. That every bishop gets to decide how he leads his church. And then, of course, from there, every priest gets to decide how to lead his church. So what we really have is a, a plan to, uh, to diminish, to dissolve the, uh, the Roman Catholic faith, the church as Christ had established it 2,000 years ago. So that is also part of the agenda. So this next episode then that I'm going to look at concerns the two, two of the main characters, Father Christian Gladstone and Father Damien Slattery, as they go over their findings. Uh, they were sent to America to investigate cases of sexual abuse and Satanism within the clergy. So in this scene, they look at their findings, they analyze the data that they had assembled. Day by day, they huddled in the library, reviewing their records of names and dates and places, analyzing documented activities each had collected and verified independently of the other. And day by day, Damien became more and more convinced that he was right. It wasn't just that the material showed that homosexual activity and ritual Satanism had both reached an organizational level among U.S. clergy. It was that the same names and the same places cropped up in both sets of data. Chris, for example, had catalogued hundreds of cases of pedophiliac priests whose bishops moved them from parish to parish. Slattery's records showed that a few of those same bishops were themselves involved in established covens. Some, in fact, even turned up in the mysterious records of Satanist activity, Bishop Ruston, 
had kept during his days as head of the Mother Chapel. True to his word, Inspector Vodilla had quickly found the help he needed to decipher the names and locations of affiliated chapels around the country. So there it was, all set out as clear as you please. So compelling was the pattern that emerged, in fact, that Chris found he could literally map the coincidence between clerical pedophiliac activity and known Satanist covens. He was able to mark the location of all the dioceses, too many dioceses in too many parts of the country, where the names of known pedophiliac priests were identical with the names of priests Damien had linked to Satanist covens. And again, bear in mind, this book was published in 1996. That was just at the, at the very wake when things were starting to be revealed of, of what was going on. And, of course, the despicable fact that those priests and bishops involved were moved from parish to parish to keep it hidden, to keep it a secret for as long as they could. But anyway, we have to keep praying, keep praying. The, the, the book itself tries to explain how this could have happened, what the, the root causes were. But of course, the, the damage, the damage was there before, but it was made a lot worse with, with what came after. So then the last excerpt I want to read out is towards the end, uh, as the Pope prepares for one of his journeys, one of his paper visits, he wants to undertake a visit to Russia, the first visit to Russia since the, the fall of the Iron Curtain. I think his first visit, his first papal visit to the, the former, former Soviet Union, which had since fallen apart. So this is his farewell speech as he leaves Rome, and he addresses the bishops and cardinals who were gathered either side of him. So this is what he says. The Pope turned to his left and faced the ranks of his bishops. My brothers, he told those worthies, for more than 15 years we have jointly governed the visible organization of Christ's mystical body. You became bishops and you remain bishops because I, the Bishop of Rome, decided so. But we have not nourished our unity. Most of you are not willing to implement what I have wished to implement for the betterment of our people. The time has come for that state of things to end. The time has come for each of you, each one of you who will, to ensure our unity in exercising our functions as bishops. Unsmiling, his holiness moved to his right until he stood before his cardinals. My lord's cardinal, as I leave the city, I put you in charge of this holy see until, under God, I return here. You are called cardinals because on you hinges the well-being of the church. Your eminences are the direct participants in the bureaucracy that aids me, the Pope of all the Catholics, to administer the church universal. The time has come for your eminences to ask yourselves whether your service to this Holy See has been and is now rendered according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit, or whether it is rendered according to the dictates of some who would subordinate this Holy See to the will of those who wish to destroy it. Pontiff drew in a long breath. We must, each and all of us, examine the alliances we have formed. We must ask ourselves if we will not be ashamed of those alliances when we are called to give an ultimate accounting to our ministry, to, of our ministry to God. We must remind ourselves that we are not in rehearsal for another and greater day. For this is the day. This is all the chance we have to make good or suffer terrible shipwreck. I ask you then to wish me well on my journey and I ask you to send me off with your blessing.
some closing remarks. The main agenda of the enemies of the Pope was to get him to resign. That is one of the recurring themes, one of the 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 main plot device. The driver of the plot is the enemies of the Pope, bishops included, bishops and cardinals, to force him to sign the resignation protocol so that he would step down and allow another election to take place. And during such an election, they would elect one of their own to the chair of Peter and then put in, set in motion their plan for the church to start to undo the church in preparation for their new world order. Now, in many instances, Father Malachi Martin has been described as a, as a prophet, a man ahead of his time, who foresaw events. Uh, the fact that this novel itself talks about the resignation of a pope. Um, in light of what we know today, in light of where we stand today, is is, is quite, yeah, um, perhaps I shouldn't c comment on it. <laughs> um, but certainly as, as, as you read through the novel and as you see the situations there and the drive to get Pope John Paul II to resign, we look at the resignation that did occur then in 2013, eight years ago now. Uh, some of the events can be linked up and we see that perhaps Maliki Martin wasn't wasn't just making things up as, as he was going along. After all, he was an insider. He worked in the Vatican for, for decades, so he knew the wheelings and dealings that went on there. But anyway, on that note, we'll leave it at that. This is a heavy, it is a heavy book. That's why it's not for everyone. Um, and would I recommend it for certain people? It's probably better uh, for people who are solid in their faith, who know that the events described therein won't won't upset them. Um, again, my advice would just be to, you're better off reading the catechism and the scriptures and maybe some of his other stuff. I haven't read all of them. The devil might be interesting for people interested in cases of exorcisms and demonic possession. Uh, but as for this one, it, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. So anyway, on that note, we'll, we'll leave it at that for today. We'll close with a quick prayer. And uh, next time I'll have something more lighthearted for you <laughs> with the help of God. So let us close in prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for giving us life, for guiding us. We ask for perseverance, for fortitude, for strength in these strange and confusing times. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. We ask your guidance and your inspiration to lead us through the trials and temptations that lie ahead. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for watching this uh, quite long video. It ended up being longer than I expected. But I do hope you got something out of it. And if you did like it, please give it a like and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already and i'll leave you at that so take care and god bless we were listening to book review number one wind swept house a 1996 
novel by Father Malachi Martin, Ph.D. Jesuit, Chant the channel is oh, it's a YouTube channel by in Igne Vignette. Gotta subscribe right now. I capital I N N capital I G N E Igne Capital V E N I E T Vignette or Vignette. Oops, oops, I lost my page. Gotta go back because they have other ones. The Resignation Protocol. Wait, does this say? In the first book review on this channel, we'll be looking at the Vatican thriller Windswept House by Father Malachi Martin with 646 pages. This was longest book I had read in a long time. It is also the most recent book relevant to this channel that I've read. And I wanted to do a video on it while my memory was still fresh. As I've stated, the book is most appropriately classified as fiction, but Father Martin testified that the that the events and people described therein are all based on factual evidence and real occurrences, only that the names of the characters have been altered. The following is a link to a website that tries to match up the characters with their real counterparts. That is https colon slash slash www dot fisheaters.com F-I-S-H E-A-T-E-R-S one word dot com forward slash catholic dot 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 <clears throat> so this is all online he breaks it down time stamps each thing that he covered says visit my website www dot com 
check out his book, Inspired and Inerrant, A New Guide to the Old Testament, 2020 Self-Published, available in paperback and Kindle edition on Amazon. Again, his book is called Inspired and Inerrant. I-N-E-R-R-A-N-T. A New Guide to the Old Testament. On Amazon UK and Amazon USA. There's more information from his channel. I thought he did a great idea, a great review, and his um his Irish accent was so so easy to listen to, pleasant, and sort of added to the aura. Father Malachi referred to his homeland. Um, it's been a while since I heard Father Malachi's interviews by Art Bell, but they're very long, very thrilling, and worth your time. They're all online. If you want to hear them, Art Bell, A-R-T, Art, last name Bell, B-E-L-L, with Malachi Martin, one through seven. There's seven different ones. They're really long, really thrilling, edgy. Some of them are very scary. Because he details, he doesn't give names but he, or locations, but he does give uh, some of the experience he had. He was also an exorcist, so he gives some details about his encounters in those exorcists, exorcisms, and it can be very upsetting so it's not for everyone to hear it can be startling and shocking to hear what he has to say about the exorcisms that he experienced thank you for listening